0: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Mukherjee, the host of New Books in Law. Today we'll be talking to Sally Cabot Gunning about law in her Setucket trilogy The Widow's War, Bound, and The Rebellion of Jane Clark. Gunning is an accomplished writer of mystery novels and historical fiction. By bringing to life important pieces of our legal past, her historical fiction encourages a wide audience to wrestle with a diverse array of legal thoughts. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became a writer.
1: Sure. I actually became a writer by uh, being an avid reader, starting uh, as a very small child. I was very, very lucky to have two parents who constantly read to us. Uh, My favorite pastime was the afternoon after school at the library, and uh, as was often the in those days, the the parent available to drive me to the library wasn't happening fast enough. And one day I just sat down with some paper and I decided to write my own story. And I think I was about six at the time (laughs) and it just never stopped. I I really never gave too much thought to being a published author uh, until many, 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 many years later when uh, I had some time to actually fine tune something. And I said, oh, maybe I'll do something with that. And it was successful, and that was where it all began.
0: Great. Um, uh, Would you please tell us now how you came to write your novels that we're discussing today and what drew you to the legal themes you discussed within their pages?
1: It's funny because absolutely the legal theme drew me right into the story for the first historical novel, The Widow's War. Uh, I was actually doing some research on a, a family history, and I came across a will where my however-many-greats grandfather mentions in the will that he leaves his widow her thirds. And I didn't know what he was talking about, so I decided to look into the thirds. And when I found out what they were, I wasn't too crazy about them. Uh, In colonial times, in Massachusetts, now different states had different systems, but we adopted English common law. And uh, almost always, the property would pass to the nearest male heir and the Commonwealth actually thought they were protecting women by creating this uh, law about a widow's thirds. It meant that she had life use of a third of her husband's uh, real estate, essentially. And that meant that she wasn't going to be tossed out on the street corner uh, when a son came in with his own family or whatever. The part of this tale that uh, I don't think anybody really thought too much about at the time was uh so somebody's getting the other two-thirds of this house. Most cases, In most cases, they'll move into those two-thirds of the house. And now here's this widow who's enjoyed a whole house, and now she is crammed into one-third of it. And nobody seemed to think that there was anything too wrong with that whole system. I thought there was something a little wrong with it.
0: So I guess that leads us into, um, if you could give a brief description of some of of the plots of the novels that we're going to discuss today uh, and describe their setting a little bit.
1: Sure. Uh, All three books are set entirely or in part in Brewster on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and this is where I live. And the reason that I set the books there is because I can't walk five feet out my door without stumbling over 18th century history, 19th century history, And everybody else was writing about the 19th century, our famous clipper ship captains and and the the seafaring uh, era, the salt works, the fish weirs. Nobody was paying too much attention to the 18th century, and to me it was fascinating. So that's kind of how it ended up being uh, my favorite setting. Uh, The first book, as I said, I found this story about, I found a will about uh, Widow's Thirds. And as I kept looking into this issue, I found a story about a woman who had been given her, uh, actually, she hadn't been given her third. She'd been given a, quite a bit of money in her husband's will with the intention that the son was going to get the house and move in with his family and she'd go somewhere else. And she didn't want to do that. And according to colony law, you could choose. You could, you could accept the will or you could fall back on what they would call your third's. And that's what she did. And she squatted, This in the story that I found, this woman squatted in the house and refused to move. And this is, of course, someone that really appealed to me. <laughs> so I decided I was going to write a story about a woman like that particular um, person. I knew exactly when I wanted to set the story. Round about the time that I was fooling around with this idea, they decided to set up a statue for Mercy Otis Warren in front of the Brewster, uh, Excuse me, Barnstable Courthouse, a couple of towns west from here. And I realized I didn't know as much as I should about Mercy Otis Warren or her brother James Otis, whose statue was already sitting in front of the courthouse. And as I started to read about them, I said, oh boy, I want to write something about Mercy. But the more I got thinking about it, James was the one who actually really captured my imagination. Back in 1761, he wrote a speech Uh, He's delivered a speech in Boston where he talked about the natural rights of man, his right to life, liberty, and property. He talked about giving women the vote after we educate them, comparably to the education we are giving to men. And he talked about emancipating the slaves. In 1761, this was kind of horrifying stuff to a lot of people, but Later in life, John Adams would declare that that was the moment independence was born, the day that James Otis made that speech. And I thought, we should have heard more about this man. He should be much more up there with with Adams, the Adamses, and and everybody else. So I I decided he was the perfect catalyst for the widow's uh, leap into uh, her own struggle for independence. Uh, She would hear of this speech. Everyone heard of this speech. It was the talk all over Cape Cod. He was a native son, of course, but also this was big stuff, what he was throwing out there. So I thought, what a perfect catalyst for a woman to decide uh, maybe she does have a few more rights than she thought she had. Um, Maybe she should be treated like someone with a brain who would be able to be educated and vote and make her own decisions, and she decides to make this very large decision for herself. Uh, from there, every single book I've written since then has has leaped out of the book before. As I was writing The Widow's War, I was very fortunate to stumble across a diary written between the years of, I believe it was 1742 to 1765, by a local uh, fellow who started out kind of a wild young man, and he ended up one of the leading town fathers, And all through the book, we follow his progress into adulthood, shall we say, and responsibility. He was fortunately a terrific gossip. So I got to find out all about the the scandals of the day. And it was so wonderful to find this accurate, detailed description of how such a fellow got through his day. And in that diary, he had an indentured servant who had left his employee and ended up arrested for the crime of infanticide. Back in the day, any single woman who gave birth to a child while she was alone and the child died would very often be charged with the crime of infanticide because they assumed she did something to cover up her sin of fornication, which is exactly what they would call it. So this fellow had gone to visit this former indentured servant in, she'd been thrown in Barnstable Jail where she had to wait a quite lo- quite a long time for her trial because in those days, John Adams, for example, and most of the other lawyers were what they called circuit lawyers. They got on horseback and rode all over New England from one small court town to another. We didn't have uh, a sitting court all the time until it was our turn. So I decided to try to find out what I could about that trial. And I did. I was able to get all the legal records from the archives, the Massachusetts State Judicial Archives, the transcripts of the, not the transcripts of the trial essentially, but uh, the transcripts of the witness um, statements, the jury verdict, uh, the arrest warrant was interesting in and of itself. uh, And I was able to look at all those records and it was just so fascinating to me And I thought, I really don't know. I I remember learning in school about indentured servitude, but it was one of those things that kind of didn't stick. I didn't really understand the legality of it all, and I decided that maybe other people didn't either. So this character was an indentured servant. This would be a, a good way to tell their tale. So that's how the second book came along. Uh, the third one also leaped out of that second book. The second book was entitled Bound, and that came from a, a, what I think of as a beautiful quote from Abigail Adams when she describes the the tie that binds her to her husband being threefold, and it was love and friendship and respect, I think, was the third one. And uh, I just loved the quote so much, and it was so appropriate because you'd be bound into servitude, and it, it just seemed like the appropriate title. Uh, As I was researching that book, there is a court scene, too, actually, in that book. And in order to figure out how an 18th century court worked, I decided to uh, delve into the Boston Massacre because that was the most uh, well-known trial of the 18th century. Backing up a little bit, here in Brewster we have... Uh, a recreated somewhat recreated mill site here where we have an 18 uh, 19th century mill still on the site and a beautiful herring run and all through history on one side of the stream has lived the Clarks and on the other side of the stream has lived the Winslows and they've been feuding over millstream rights uh for many many through a couple of generations let's just say that Uh, I always wanted to write something about that millstream feud. It got to the point where, uh, let's see now, a Clark cut off the ears of Winslow's horse as part of this feud. And I said, this is getting pretty ridiculous. And I wanted to find out a little more about that. I went again up to the judicial archives. And in five seconds, I found 30 cases between Winslow and Clark suing over these mill rights. And I thought that I had a part of a story there but i didn't really have the full story so as i'm reading about the boston massacre i discover that john adams had a particular woman uh named jane whitehouse as a witness he he defended the british soldiers uh in the trial and he this this woman really helped turn the tide for his case and and bring these the um the facts i'll just say facts uh to light in a way that. hadn't quite been brought out by other people at the time. And I said, well, this is, I didn't know about her. This sounds like another character that would be interesting to write about. So let's find out exactly what her testimony was. So I took out John Adams' legal papers from the library, quite a few volumes. And I found, lo and behold, one of the millstream lawsuits in that book. It was called A Key Tam, and it means something along the lines of he who sues for, the prov- for himself, sues for the province. And uh, anyone who stopped the flow of herring during spawning season could be uh, charged with a crime. And whatever settlement they received went half to the province and half to the one who, who filed the claim. So that was one of the famous lawsuits in Adams' records. And that was between Winslow and Clark. And John Adams won his case, of course. So I thought, oh, boy, this is tying back into my millstream. fugue how perfect is this? At the same time, I had decided I needed to know more about the Adamses. So I started to read this large, large, large collection of correspondence. It's our good fortune and not the Adamses' good fortune that Abigail and John were separated for a great many years during their marriage. So these lovely, lovely letters go flying back and forth. And... In these letters, I find quite an interesting situation with the Adams's daughter. She wanted to marry a particular man, and her father didn't think it was a good idea, and she decided that he was right and she was wrong, and he married her father's law clerk. Terrible choice. He descended into alcoholism, and she was mostly supported by her parents, and her children were supported by her parents. But in, later in her life, she actually wrote in a letter that her father had never attempted to sway her opinion about anything. And it was so evident in this letter that her love for him and her respect for him was so strong that that change in life course that she underwent uh, for her father had been subsumed uh, into her own mind in such a way that she felt it was her decision. She just felt that uh, he had come up with this great idea maybe but it, she took it as her own eventually. So my mind is going crazy and I'm thinking wow, how interesting. Say she had that respect and um, regard for her father's opinion. Say she found out he cut off a horse's ears. What would happen to that? So that was, that was where the rebellion of Jane Clark came from. Uh, I won't keep going. There's more. <laughs> there are two more books coming that each got born from another one, but they're not part of our discussion today. So we'll stop there.
0: Let's talk now about your portrayal of the lawyer Ebenezer Freeman in all three of those novels. He, he's not a perfect character. Um, he's, you see his flaws. And he also serves a very protective role at times of the protagonist's but he's a very interesting character to watch uh, in his development, um, and how he sees the law, and how that changes, and would you talk about him for a little bit?
1: I would. I'm glad that you brought up that that evolution of Evan Freeman, that was one of my favorite themes. Uh, he was, he, when James Otis burst on the scene, he was, uh, you know, it just blew his mind. He was so excited. He was He was forward-thinking. He really could see a way that this was all going to change uh, America for the better. He also was very excited about the aspect of women being educated, women voting, the slaves being emancipated. He was good with all that. He was really good with it. Uh, And he actually was the one who called the widow's attention to uh, these items and declared James Otis her friend. So he really had come in the door as presenting himself as quite an open-minded individual. When it came down to his personal relationships, he had a little bit of a problem uh, treating women exactly as equal as it may have appeared he was going to be able to do. He, I think the best way to describe his evolution In the beginning, he was quite offended that the widow, Barry, would not trust him to manage her affairs for her, to make her decisions for her. He was quite offended that she wanted to uh, retain some control over her life, her property. He could not understand this. He thought, how could you not trust me enough to manage your affairs? By the end of the third novel in the series... Jane Clark, the the surrogate daughter of John and Abigail Adams, let me say, uh, has got quite a few decisions to make. She she has to choose whether she's going to go with the flow or go against the stream in Boston, and this was a decision that would have been physically and emotionally very, very dangerous for her. And she looks to Evan Freeman and kind of starts picking his brains, and he says to her, you're not getting off this easily. This is your decision, and in the course of that work, there were some other quotes that I was able to put in there about, and this was an actual charge of a judge to a jury in the massacre uh, trial. It was basically, your good sense and understanding will direct you. I don't need to say anything else. So I, t- I took those words and gave them to Evan Freeman. He had evolved to the point where he could look at a young woman and understand especially after this particular young woman had come forth and done some courageous things, that she can handle this. She can make up her own mind. It's not my job to make her decision for her. So over the course of the three books, he does evolve in those ways. I I wanted him to present... In some ways, he was more forward-thinking than the average 18th-century male in many ways. So I wanted to present... Uh, some of the other side of the story because it would have been unusual for a man in this situation to leap in and hand over control to his wife. So I wanted to have uh, a struggle.
0: So we we've already talked a little bit about the legal status of widows. We can talk more about that or we can move into the legal status of married women in the 18th century and how that ties into... Uh, Liddy Berry's struggle over whether she should remarry, um, what that means for her legal status.
1: Yes, I, and they, it's related. Uh, that's the interesting thing because in in 18th century Massachusetts, women, uh, a married woman, excuse me, can't own property. A married woman is property. She's legally her husband's property, her children are his hus- her husband's property. There are no such thing as custody battles. Because the children belong to the husband. It's all very clear. And the minute she becomes a widow, oh, and I might just also add, any income she might have, any goods that she receives, immediately become the property of her husband within that marriage. Now, the minute she becomes a widow, she takes with her whatever her husband has told her she can take. Very often, the will will read, she may take with her what she brought to the marriage. And that would very often be the, the contents of the kitchen, the beds, the bedding, a lot of the household furnishing furnishings. So very often, as we talked about, this widow in the third of a house, she's crammed into that third with the contents of a home very many times that she doesn't necessarily want to part with. So it makes a big difference. Now, when that widow then turns around to remarry. The most common phrase I come across in wills was she she gets her thirds or she gets whatever she gets until the time of her remarriage, and then forget it because then here's another man to take care of her, and it all, again, will now go back to the son or the nearest male relative, whoever that might be. So they're using the woman as a placeholder, essentially, the goods and possessions of the male line while she's alone she holds that place by occupying a third of it if she wishes when she marries again it automatically skips over her and goes down to the next person in line so there was quite of a quite of a difference in the two situations and the perception I think is that women were quick to remarry because it was very difficult to make your way uh, alone but this this particular study that i found on 18th century widows again in massachusetts found that they did not remarry anywhere near as often as we might have supposed and a lot of that had to do with the fact that they've got a little control and there it goes again the minute they sign on the dotted line one interesting aside i had really wanted to write about mercy otis warren but she doesn't kick into american uh historical records really until uh, 1773 when John Adams asks her to write a play about the Boston Tea Party, I think it was, yes. And as a woman, she couldn't be published if she didn't write it either anonymously or under a man's name. Later on, she had to actually apply to John Adams and others for testimony, declaring that she was indeed uh, the, the author of these pieces so that she could get some credit for it. But on her, when she was dying, she wanted to leave, well, when she wrote her will, let me say, she wanted to leave her, co- she ended up writing a three-volume history of the American Revolution, the first one written by a woman, and uh, our first history of the American Revolution. And she wanted to leave her copyright to her son. There was a huge discussion whether she owned her copyright, because any product of a woman's labor becomes the possession of, of her husband so he had already disposed of his goods to the nearest male heir so there was and i honestly can't tell you how it ended but i thought that was pretty interesting
0: okay let's move on to bound um and talk a little bit more about indentured servitude in the 18th century uh and the character alice's status under the law
1: indentured servitude uh is pretty interesting we first had indentured servants here in america before we had slaves they came on the mayflower and they never left uh when we first started importing chattel slaves they worked alongside the indentured servants there was very little difference uh in how they were treated by law there's a pretty big difference an indentured servant actually is not property a chattel slave is property People would leave in their wills their pig, their horse, and their Negro, all in one sentence. There was no no separation of, of items uh, with any kind of a legal discrepancy between an animal and a slave. They were property, that was all. An indentured servant is not property. They actually do have legal rights. They're allowed to make contracts. They're allowed to sue. So there is some protection afforded an indentured servant, Um remind me to say something about the book I'm working on about when we get into the laws of protecting and not protecting slaves. Uh, the other thing that was interesting to me is the extent to which they their term of indenture could be manipulated. And there was so much uh, unseemly manipulation going on, I'm just going to use that word. Any, For example, if an indentured servant tried to run away and they were gone a day, the law... Tax seven more days on for that one day. If they're gone 10 days, they get 70 days tacked on when they get back. An indentured servant could not marry without permission, and the master of an indentured servant could add on a year to the time of a pregnant woman because that year as a pregnant woman and nursing and caring for an infant takes away from the time that, the time belongs to the master and they'll add on a year for someone who's pregnant. And uh, you might imagine, and bound is the perfect example, that there was quite a bit of abuse of young female indentured servants. So imagine that your master impregnates you. Just by the fact of that, you get a year added on to your time because you're pregnant. If he wants to, he can add more time on for the crime of fornication And you can see where this could get a little out of hand. The other abuse uh, occurred even before they got off the boat. I'm going to use that expression. Very often, inflated charges were inflicted on the passage that weren't accounted for. And so people walked off the boat expecting to work off a debt with maybe four years of labor. And by the time all the I's are dotted and T's crossed and lies told... Uh, They could be years and years and years and years uh, indentured for something. They also would sometimes send over prisoners. They scooped orphans up off the street and sent them over. Children were a whole different ballgame. Anyone in the town of Brewster, anywhere in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, any child could be removed from his parents' care and signed away into indentured servitude. Boys until they're uh, 21 girls until they're 18, and the law stated that uh, the selectmen could make this decision, and they were supposed to check in on them every now and then. There was no other restriction uh, put on them than that. The boys were supposed to be taught to read and write, and the girls were supposed to be taught to read as they were capable. I love that. And uh, when all said and done, when they turn 18 and 21 respectively, and somebody opens the door and says, go, All they're required to hand over for basically a life's servitude, two sets of clothes. So uh, you you can imagine these these young people entering into life as an adult with nothing. So it wasn't the best system in the world. And there is one other point I would make. Not everyone did, but some people who owned chattel slaves took very good care of them because they were in protecting an investment. The longer this slave was able to work, the the better it was for the master. Indentured servants were very often run into the ground because especially towards the end of their indenture, the, the master wasn't going to get anything for them anyway. So they didn't have that particular incentive to see that they were healthy or fed.
0: Yeah, Um You uh, alluded to this, um, but uh, could we talk a little bit about Alice's trial for murder? And if you could tell us a little bit about the 18th century courtroom. um, And uh, you mentioned this already, but how common infanticide cases were in that time period.
1: I don't really have any stats on it, but... uh it, it, the, they told me up at the judicial archives that it really was a common thing. It was, you know, it peppers it peppers the uh, records uh, these young women, and it it's so interesting to me because abortion was legal. What was not legal, quote unquote, was fornication. So so many times, somebody would be brought to trial not for aborting a child or murdering a child or anything. It was for fornicating and it's a bizarre kind of a situation where they would say they would murder the child to cover up the fornication. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I have a different way I would rate those crimes, but I think in the case that I tell in bound in particular, all the, the the tale that I tell, I pretty much ripped out of the uh, records. The midwife came by, to the somebody had told them that this young woman had been pregnant or given birth or something so she dropped by unannounced to the house and found her not well and said i think you're having a child and she said no i'm not so the woman went away to bring a witness another witness back with her and she came back and the woman had already given birth and there was no baby to be seen and they found it lying under a coat or a blanket or something dead. And the trial, they, they went and told the constable and they arrested her and threw her in jail. And you can't imagine she was in terrific shape to be thrown into a jail at that point. It was, you know, a scary story. But the the verdict... Do I want to tell the verdict? I'm giving away my plot. Uh, yeah. but But part of the discussion that went on in the courtroom was did she murder the child to cover up her sin of fornication or was this young woman, very young, all alone, just ignorant of what she needed to do to deliver a living child. And uh, that was the debate. Now, the sad thing is the two, the midwife and the other woman who stumbled on the scene, were not her friend. They were very much uh, trying to nail her big time for uh, murdering this child. The men on the jury looked at it a whole other way. They had a much larger view of the whole situation, and I thought that was very interesting considering the day and time.
0: This might be another plot spoiler, but Alice's second trial, she's treated, considering what she has gone through, um the way the law treated her, I think is a very interesting um commentary on the way women and indentured servants were seen under the law in that time period
1: she did i think it's I think it's fair to say there that my character, Alice, had two trials: the first one is for the charge of infanticide, and uh the second one was. For the charge of running away from the master who abused and impregnated her in the first place, and that second trial. In the first trial, there was some sympathy for her case, and and it worked out for her in the long run, after many many months lying in a jail cell. Uh, but you know, in the end, she she was vindicated. But in the second trial, there they would not just there there is sympathy for this. Person, but they will not. It's a very law-abiding world back then. And and the other thing that's amazing is how many people sued for things. They it was it was like a common pastime to sue for people for something. I mean, it was unbelievable all the foolish things they sued over. But it was no trial until the Boston Massacre had ever gone be, beyond a day, so uh, it wasn't the long drawn out you know situation that it very often is now. So. There's sympathy for her, but they will not throw out the letter of the law. She owes her master time. And the law says she owes him the time, no matter what he did to her. And if there is a witness that observes the abuse, that's a whole other story. But in this case, there's no witness they weren't willing to just throw the law out the window on the basis of a suspicion. They're, they're looking at two people in the courtroom and there's somebody that they think is telling the truth and somebody they don't think is telling the truth, but the law still has to side with the untruthful person in that case because there's the law there. They did manage to get around it a little bit. They refused to return her to her master, but they did still bind her out to serve out those years that she now owed. I mean, you can imagine she was gone for probably a year and at a rate of seven to one, you know, she's got a lot more time to, to work off there. So, but they're not going to look at it as her, the time is not her property. I guess that's the best way to wrap your brain around indentured servitude. You know, the time belongs to the master. That's their property and they can give and take and trade and sell it. They can. They could They could send her anywhere they wanted to work until she's used up her time.
0: One of my favorite parts of your books um, is the way your reader is able to wrestle with legal theory through your characters tr- also wrestling with different ideas. Um, like in that trial, should you do what seems just, or should you do exactly what the law says, even when it could have horrible consequences. But there's also something to say about the sanctity of the law. Uh, And I think in The Rebellion of Jane Clark, we see this turmoil going on in um, the original hero of all these books, Otis. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, he says there's a great conversation in the Rebellion of Jane Clark, there's a lot of great conversations around dinner tables about legal ideas. Um, And Otis, who was this great champion of slavery, women's rights, or not slavery, but um, freedom to slaves, and and natural rights in um, basically um, promoting the ideas that would lead to the American Revolution. And yet, around this dinner table, he tells you that the law must not be conscripted to serve one particular cause. To lose the law is to lose the fight. Um, So there is a danger to allowing ideals to take over the law, but at the same time, you don't want someone like Alice being sent to an abusive master. Um, So uh, could you talk about that a little bit?
1: I'm so glad you picked out that quote. I absolutely adored that quote. And John Adams lives that when he signs on to defend the British soldiers in the massacre. His own cousin and everyone else that he knew and loved in town was horrified that he would take on that job and he said uh, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right but he said the one thing that someone should never be in lack of in this country is a good defense and it was the principle that he wanted to uh prove. And he it, it's kind of the same thing as what Otis is saying. If we're going to start a new country, and at this point they weren't really sure they were going to do that, but there was talk. And what are we going to found it on? What are we going to base it on? And if we start doing, if we throw the law out with the bathwater where do we go from there what's what's where where do you start over so they very much wanted to found a country that could stand up and stare anybody in the eye and say we've stuck to our principles we're not we're not cutting corners here and this was so important to john adams it was so important to otis and I would have wanted to be at the dinner table with those three lawyers sitting there, those two real ones and my Eben Freeman that I made up. But uh, a lot of his uh, thought and feeling comes from the other two. I, I read everything I could find on those two men, and it was really interesting stuff. Uh, complicating that, I'm not sure this is the place to get into that, but complicating Otis's situation, uh there was a long strain of mental illness in his family and he suffered a severe head injury at the hands of British soldiers just while he was out at a coffee house having a brew and they jumped on him and carved his head up with a blade. And before that he was already getting a little wiggy, but after that there was a marked decline in his, um, I'm going to say his mental equilibrium It almost seemed like his uh, brain still functioned at a high level, but it could no longer keep him on track. And part of the thing, I think, that kind of put him around the bend was just this very idea that if we, in other words, he very much wanted nothing to do with Parliament. He did not so much want to ditch the king. He did not want to cut every cord that bound us to England because what do we do then? We float free in space. We don't we have nothing tethering us to anything. And he did not trust his compatriots. He absolutely did not trust Sam Adams. And in the back of his head, he's thinking, We ditched the king and Sam Adams is ruling us. This is going to be a big mess. So he was very, very conflicted as as this course that he actually set in motion. Developed and led towards an inevitable, somewhat, and he was very conflicted. And I think this finally uh, just caused such a mental breakdown in him that he was no longer a reliable uh, partner in the project. So it 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 got scary uh, for the people that were trying to bring this off. And he ended up actually leaving Boston, wrapped up in a what they called a straight waistcoat and packed off to his family to take care of him um he was gone and he he ended up being declared non-compass mentis and and having a guardian put over him so it was very sad but I still and I think that might be part of the reason why he doesn't get the credit that he deserves because in my day our heroes had to fit in a neat little box in our history book, it couldn't be gray. There could no be, be no gray area. This guy came out apologizing for what he did in, in causing the American Revolution. You didn't want to have that in your textbooks back in my day, so he didn't get too much airtime, and I really, that was one thing I was hoping I could do with these books, give him a little airtime. Okay.
0: Um, well, there's someone who gets lots of airtime uh, in our books, and um, you talked about this a little bit but john adams defended the british soldiers who were involved in the boston massacre um and captain preston uh, could you talk a little bit about that trial
1: yes john adams was asked to defend other people were asked to defend the british soldiers and they all said no they asked john adams and he said yes and the minute he said yes, others came on board. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, they needed someone else to be the first one in. There is a school of thought that the two Adamses, Sam and John, kind of were in cahoots about this ahead of time. Um, the, all, the pub, all the stuff that's written and, and publicly uh, available will claim that Sam was furious um, from beginning to end, that Adams would have anything to do with this. But I could actually make the case for either scenario. Um, John Adams, one big issue in the trial was how, as John Adams described it, we cannot make this a trial of the town. Because in actual fact, the British soldiers, thanks to Sam Adams, uh, were provoked and tormented and injured day upon day upon day by the populace. And there's, it was a matter of time before somebody fired off something into the crowd. And that was Sam Adams' purpose. He, he needed this to all escalate into an event such as the Boston Massacre. And the other two lawyers, there were three lawyers um, altogether, together they said oh this is great we can bring out all these attacks that were going on here there that you know and um so forth and john adams said no you don't we are not going to try the town because he's from day one he's got the long view he's thinking way down the road and you don't want to at this moment describe boston as a bunch of crazy um rabble rousers as just an out of control mob when later we want to turn around and say these people are, are right and they're acting on principle and they're going to run this country. He had it all in his head. We cannot let this turn into any kind of a trial on, on the behavior that's been going on in Boston. Sam Adams, the day the verdict came down in favor of the British soldiers and the capt- and Captain Preston, there were two separate trials, the captain for first, I think, and then the soldiers second, the day the verdict came down in in favor of the soldiers, Sam Adams is on the steps of the courthouse, just using it to the hilt. Now, the second injustice has been brought down on Boston. The first is the massacre itself, and the second is this miscarriage of justice in these two trials. And it was all he could have asked for. He hit the papers. <clears throat> he hit the streets. He just recreated the whole story exactly how he wanted it to be perceived through time. And through time, for many, many uh, decades and longer, that was exactly how it was perceived, exactly as Sam Adams wanted it to be and not how it happened and not how John Adams would have presented it. So how horrible was that for Sam Adams? Not so much. And so you will have to wonder, you know, a little bit. But uh, there were people that had disowned their children. Uh, One of John Adams' lawyers' father disowned him because he would participate in the trial. It was serious stuff. It wasn't a joke. They were not happy. And uh, John Adams did get castigated for a, a long, long time because of his participation in that trial. He was very bitter about it. And when he wrote his autobiography many, many, many years later, he said... This was my finest hour, and uh, it's just too bad they all hate me. (laughs) And he never thought he was ever going to get any credit for anything he ever did, ever. So I I hope he knows. Okay.
0: Um, One thing that really struck me in your description of the trial, this connects back to what we were saying about Otis, was um, uh, the rule of law uh, in your story. The main character in your book, Jane, Uh, As she's living in Boston, she does experience things that make Boston seem like there's a mob at times. And yet when, and she walks into this courthouse when the Captain Preston is being put on trial and she sees these people on very opposing sides in the issue mixed tightly together in this courthouse. And she says, it seems sure to promise a brawl. And then, a few pages later, she's surprised to see that uh, it 's actually not like that at all because this was not the street, this was the world of law
1: it was it refers back a little bit to what I said before about this populace is very much enamored of the law they they used it for their own purposes they sued they 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 trust it this was this was a a go to vehicle for them uh really they they really much follow the rules for the most part in terms of the legal process. And there was documentation of that trial and the fact that it was so orderly. And here you do have these mobs on the street. And it's pretty much understood that those mobs were um, created by Sam Adams and and a few of his other uh, henchmen. And for a particular purpose, now it's not a good idea to be acting like a mob You're you're supposed to be presenting the idea that we are um, a law-abiding society here, and it was very peaceful, and I think that was kind of nice for everyone going forward, that we could take this trial and pull it off with the dignity and grace and come out with what really, I think, in the longer view, everyone agreed was the absolute right verdict, And move on. Not everyone gets to do that.
0: Um, So I'm going to ask you a much broader question now. Could you talk about historical fiction as a vessel for sharing history and legal and political thought with a wide audience?
1: I meant to look up my favorite quote in all the world about this before we met today, and I didn't ever do it, but there's a historian uh, who I've been devouring because of the book I'm working on presently, and she gives the most wonderful quote. She says it's going, and she's an historian. I mean, she is locked in. She's, She's really straight down the line in terms of everything has to be a documented fact. And she said, it's now over to... The fiction writers and the poets to make sense of this and find its meaning. And that's why I write historical fiction because <clears throat> there are d- there are dots that need connecting, there are gaps in the historical record and sometimes you can get if you sit around and read thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of letters of some historical figure, you get some idea of who that person is. And it's easier for you to connect a dot when you understand the character of the person that's that's writing about this and writing about this, and then you want to know how did they get there. And if you understand who they are, it's much easier to do that. So that's kind of what I try to do. Um, I think I I am I'm a very I'm a real stickler for a fact. You may have noticed that. <laughs> I do so much research for my books. And I stick to it. I stick to the fact where it exists. Where I get to be a fiction writer is where it doesn't exist. And obviously, you know, if I'll take a character, for example, we'll start with the widow in The Widow's War. I know that this woman in history uh, was given her thirds. I know another woman in history was given money and she wanted her thirds and she squatted in her house and refused to move. I know these things but who was, and I combined them into a woman, who was that woman? So then I start to read about what a woman's day is like. How does a woman get through the day in the 18th century? What are the factors that are going to influence her? Uh, There was such a high rate of infant mortality and even older children. How does that affect these women? I read the, The Midwife's Tale, for example, which is a non fiction diary of a midwife in um the late eighteenth century up in maine for nineteen years she 's marking the anniversary of the deaths of her children and probably longer, but the record only went as far as nineteen now my perception would have been for a culture where babies are dying left and right you 'd almost start thinking of them as a little more bit disposable i 'm going to say as a very callous word but for 19 years, she's marking the anniversary of every child's death. So this was huge, and so that that came into Liddy Berry's character. She'd lost a number of children, and this was not something that she moved on from, and it affected her relationship with her living her one living child, and things like that. So I find a real fact in the midwife's tale, and I give it to my character, and I find out exactly how you cook all you know monday's bake day what do you bake what order do you bake it in so my widow is now doing the baking in exactly the order that they would have done the last into the oven is the beans so they can just sit there all night so those are the things that make the tale in my mind make it real make it true but in between there i have this character who comes up with some wild decisions that may seem out of place for the time But I don't see that they are because of the way all these other events have shaped her life. And, for example, she backs off from the church. Um, I found another diary where a 42-year-old woman was pregnant for, I think, the 12th time. And she said, I question God's governance. And my idea of the New England Puritan was that There's this religious system in place, and they all buy the package, so to speak, and there is not a lot of debate or disagreement or uh, question. What do I find? Women's diary after women's diary after women's diary, they're questioning it every minute of the day. They don't get this. It's a society that is uh, told if something bad happens, it's because of something you did, and God is punishing you for it. And these poor women are going. Wait a minute! You know, come on now. I didn't burn the crop, or right? I didn't cause the drought. And they're questioning, questioning, questioning. So I gave my character that kind of a personality too. Things like that that I felt were so evident in the historical record. But there's no character I pulled out of life that that was necessarily uh, saying all that. But I can accurately portray an individual uh, that would have those personality traits and of course the other big issue in the widow's war is she has an interracial relationship with uh an indian and all over cape cod there are indian names that have been anglicized uh how does this happen it's because there's intermarriage there's there's um record of interracial marriages all over the place that are just buried and i i wanted to unbury them
0: so uh, at the end of the Widow's War, you talk about finding threads that connect us. Um, this may be obvious after listening to this whole podcast, but in which ways do you feel modern audiences connect to your protagonist experiences with the law and the legal system?
1: Well, I, I don't know if it is obvious. Uh, I, I Well, to the legal system... One thing I think that really struck me, and I haven't discussed this yet, so this is good, uh, I was horrified to find out that you couldn't testify in your own defense. And it made perfect sense to me once I started reading about it. They said, why should we believe you? You're trying to not be hanged. Of course you're going to say you didn't do it. You know, what good is your word? And many times a lawyer will choose not to put a defendant on the stand for probably that very reason. But and others, if they don't seem like they would come across as reliable, but that was quite a switch our legal system has made, and I think it's kind of fun to trace that and um, to figure out. You know, just just ponder that for a minute. You know, that we've now come to realize you should have the right to speak up for for uh, your own innocence, and that that kind of struck me as a something that was i i imagine it would strike other people too and the fact that they have five judges in the courtroom all these things i mean it, we've evolved into this what i consider a, a much more unwieldy legal system and then i start reading about this and i'm saying well no not necessarily you know it is kind of going the other way of course no women could be on juries but here i write about a 12-man jury it looks at a single young woman and finds the empathy in the situation and finds the difficulties that women experience and men don't. They saw it. And things like that. I, I just felt like it gave me a little more faith in people in a, in a bizarre kind of way because they're long dead. But, mm. Okay.
0: Um, yeah, when I... I, when I saw that um, an indentured servant couldn't testify, I thought it had to do with um, their status as an indentured servant and not just in general. Uh, you weren't allowed to testify in your own case. So, it's interesting.
1: And the other thing that also struck my fancy was in the massacre trial, several slaves were called to testify, but they couldn't testify until their master submitted an affidavit or a testimony in person. <coughs> uh vouching for their trustworthiness uh, so <laughs> right how to how to totally disempower somebody yeah exactly yeah.
0: all right talking about slaves you want me to remind you um uh and also to conclude um, i'd love to talk about what you're working on now
1: oh there we go we segue right into that very nicely Uh, The working title of my current work is Monticello, and it uh, is told from the point of view of Thomas Jefferson's eldest daughter, his legal daughter, and uh, when I started out to write the book, I thought it was going to be one kind of thing, and it turned out to be another kind of a thing, and along the way, I learned uh, so much about slavery and the legalities of it, which is what I thought might be kind of interesting For example, there was no such crime as the rape of a black woman. It, not there, didn't exist. Blacks could not testify against whites. Up until a point, Thomas Jefferson's uh, four children with Sally Hemings would have been legally white because they were only one-eighth black, and that would make them legally white until a law came down the pike, they called it the one-drop rule, that said, if you have one drop of Negro blood, you are a Negro. And it it, it was so amazing to me how many, only I think it was in um, 1782, if I'm correct, they made a law that you could free a slave. Until that point, if you wanted to, you couldn't. Then very shortly after that, they made another law that, if you were a freed slave, you had to leave the state of Virginia. They were so terrified. And Thomas Jefferson says it so beautifully. He says, there is no God who could ever side with us in this contest. And he very strongly felt, and many others, and all the way up through Abraham Lincoln strongly felt, that this race could not coexist peaceably with us because we were such jerks, and how are they ever going to get over that? And it is not going to be um, peaceful, and it is going to cause a civil war. Well, gee, guess what happened? But uh, it it's guilt that is making him say that. It's not a perception of the black character or anything like that. He's saying, boy, if I, this were me, I would never forgive me for doing this. And my brain got more twisted back and forth. So try and figure out what Thomas Jefferson uh felt about slavery and you're crazy in in a very short period of time it it's very clear in the end what he does feel about it and and um but the road to get there <laughs> is kind of convoluted and his daughter had very very strong opinions at the age of 14 she she was saying outright we need to free them this is crazy what are we doing to these people and they the system keeps dragging them back in It just keeps dragging them back in. And Jefferson, too. He worked very hard to get rid of slavery in his youth and then eventually gave up. But that was really so fascinating to me as we're talking of the legalities. Of course, the book is a little more to do with Martha Jefferson Randolph's struggle to uh, find her place in a world full of conflicts And she had a difficult marriage. She had a, what's the word I want to use? Uh, An interesting relationship with her father. Uh, She had a really hard time with the Sally Hemings situation. All these conflicts, all these struggles. She had to find her way through all that. And so that was really the thrust of the book. But when I finished, the working title was something else. When I started, I mean, I'm not finished. I finished a couple of drafts, but I'm still working. Now the working title is Monticello because I realize that's what it's all about. We'll see what the title really is.
0: Okay. It has been a pleasure talking to you, and I really would like to thank you for being on the show today.
1: Well, thank you. I enjoyed it too.